You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. So the, the Berkeley kids um, and the Oakland kids and other East Bay suburbs, they kind of operated with their own little world. They didn't expect anybody to come to their shows, so they didn't worry about putting on airs or anything. If they got 10 or 15 or 20 people to come in the garage or to, you know, to see them play their band practice or play, that was like a big success. That's the voice of Larry Livermore. He's talking about the East Bay punk scene in the mid-1980s. There wasn't a whole lot going on at the time, but fast forward 10 years or so to the mid-1990s, and it would be massive. Not only would this scene produce arguably the biggest punk band ever, but it would influence millions and millions of kids around the world. And I don't just mean what kinds of music they listen to. I know because I'm one of those kids. Well, former kids. But... I was a teenager in the 1990s, when punk was everywhere, from huge stadiums to tons of grimy little basement shows. And growing up outside of Chicago, I was lucky. We had a thriving punk scene, with literally hundreds of great local bands. But at the time, everybody knew that East Bay was the center of the punk universe. He said this is a Mecca. That clip was from Journey to the End of the East Bay, a song from Rancid's platinum album, and out come the wolves. In case you couldn't understand the lyrics, he said, this ain't no mecca. And sorry, but I've got to disagree with them on this one, because for a brief time, the East Bay was a punk mecca. And there were a lot of reasons why I got this reputation, but here are three of the big ones, and they're all related. Maximum Rock and Roll, Gilman, and Lookout Records. If that doesn't make any sense to you right now, don't worry, I'll come back to all those. But here's the thing, that guy who was talking at the beginning of this episode, Larry Livermore, he played a big role in all three of these factors. Now, of course, it took a whole community to build this scene, but Larry was right there in the middle of everything. He was just back in town for a series of events celebrating the 30th anniversary of Lookout Records and Gilman, a music venue in Berkeley. I wanted to talk to Larry, not just to get some insight into a very colorful chapter of East Bay history, but also because His personal life story is pretty crazy. I mean, this guy has been through some wild shit and somehow lived to talk about it. So stick around, even if you don't give a damn about punk, because this episode is about more than just music. It's about the paradoxes of success and trying to build things outside of mainstream culture and What happens when a project you've been running out of your bedroom starts making millions and millions of dollars? Or, as Larry puts it, It was 
far beyond the wildest dreams of the, the young assembly line uh, steel mill worker that I had started out as. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Let's crank it up. You know, I'm sitting here t- today in on Telegraph Avenue in Oakland in a, ironically, a place where I first arrived when I came here 49 years ago. I interviewed Larry at my home, which is on Telegraph, across from Pill Hill. He said that the first place he stayed at in the East Bay back in the 1960s was just down the block. When I asked Larry why he moved out here from his native Detroit after briefly squatting in some abandoned New York hellhole, he put it delicately. Um, I had an unfortunate misunderstanding with the local uh, authorities and who decided they wanted to put me in jail. Uh, so I had to live elsewhere for a year. A few years ago, this really great book about the history of Bay Area punk came out. It's called Gimme Something Better. I guess Larry was feeling coy when I asked him about his legal problems, because according to the book, which Larry was interviewed for, he was a pyromaniac who got caught trying to burn down his high school, and he was involved with a big drug bust. Anyway, once he got here in 1968, he realized pretty quick that the flower power movement was already wilting. The hippie thing had started crashing and burning, it was true. I mean, the day after I got here, I went to the legendary Haight-Ashbury to see it for myself, and It was already a wasteland. Just to set the scene, Larry told me that one of the first people he ran into was a guy he knew from back in the Midwest. And uh, this dude was definitely not giving off groovy vibes. And he said, oh man, what are you guys doing here? Uh, You know, and and, uh, we said, well, we come to see the Hay-Ashbury. And he's like, oh man, you missed it all. It's like, you're, you're, you're too late. It's like, they say it's terrible here now. And he opens his briefcase and it's got a big bag of white powder or some kind of drug in a in a a, a pistol, forty five caliber pistol. And he, he then he just sort of scurries off like a a rat in a cartoon almost. And he was, had been a- while things were going sour in San Francisco, there was still a lot of energy in the East Bay. The Black Panthers were still growing. And there was a lot of idealistic Cal students who weren't ready to give up on the dream just yet. There was was this division back then, like uh, San Francisco was the lifestyle hippies that just wanted to take drugs, acid mostly, and groove and think great philosophical thoughts. In Berkeley, there was a hybrid of the the radical left. In fact, also tonight I got uh, got to Berkeley, there was a, a huge riot on Telegraph where they burned down several buildings and, poli- and a police car. And, uh, you know, when I was on acid, it made quite an impression on me. As we all know by now, the revolution did not, in fact, happen. And by 1971, flower power had taken on a much more literal meaning for Larry. He was so broke that he was digging up dandelions to eat. (music) 
trying to define punk is like trying to define art. It means different things to different people. It evolves and mutates. People have been fighting about what is and isn't punk since the time of the Sex Pistols. But the idea of rebellion, that's always felt like one of the core elements of punk. Although what exactly punk is rebelling against, that's up for debate. The original punk scene was very reactionary and um, not maybe necessarily in the typical sense, which means like right-wing political, but although it's commonly thought of as rebelling against the mainstream, uh, as I experienced it starting in 76, 77, it was as much, if not more, rebelling against the hippies who at that time were perceived, maybe incorrectly though, but as having become the mainstream, uh, a lot of the real nihilism and destructiveness, which I participated in, I have to admit, was meant especially to annoy and shock the hippies. A lot of the first generation of Bay Area punks would have been in grade school when the hippie movement was at its peak. So they weren't old enough to have participated in the Summer of Love. Instead, these young punks came of age during the burnout years they were raised in the ashes of a utopian movement. In this context, it makes sense that the first wave of punk during the mid to late 1970s was so nihilistic. Bands were proud of the fact that they could barely play their instruments. They wanted to piss off audiences and alienate people. Shows were full of fistfights and people spitting on each other and Lots of teenagers getting really drunk or doing tons of speed or both. Much of the scene was like a giant piece of angry performance art. Ah, ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night. Then... In the late 1970s and early 80s, as punk spread, the scene started getting more political, especially once Ronald Reagan came into power. There were people who realized that punk was a potentially powerful force. They decided that combining the hippies' more radical ideals of anti-authoritarianism and self-reliance onto punk's aggressive music and confrontational attitude would be an effective combination. The most successful example from this era of political punk was the Dead Kennedys. They're known as a San Francisco band, but their first practices took place on 44th Street in Oakland and were organized by the wonderfully named guitarist East Bay Ray. After their first single, California Uberalis, the scene exploded. It specifically flourished here in the Bay Area because, as much as some of the old school punks would hate to admit it, what developed here was, in fact, not just a rebellion against hippies, but a fusion of the two cultures. I mean, the, the hippie culture, this was ground zero for that. There, in 1967, 66, there's people coming from all over the world to be part of what they thought was going to be the summer of love and the city of dreams and everything was going to be free and beautiful and it turned out to be a a maelstrom of um, of crime and venereal disease and drug overdoses. 
but you know both elements were present and going back to the haight ashbury in this in the mid to late 60s there was a one element that like the diggers who definitely wanted to build things they they opened institutions the haight ashbury free clinic which is i believe still there today the, the free store which is not um you know free meals in the park that nobody had ever heard of that before and speaking of building institutions Another one of the most influential projects in the history of punk emerged from the Bay Area around the same time as the Dead Kennedys, Maximum Rock and Roll. Maximum Rock and Roll started off as a radio show on Berkeley's KPFA, and it was run by a guy named Tim Yohannan, with a very vocal and very leftist agenda. Or, as Larry puts it, He was an old hippie and uh, political activist. The Maximum Rock and Roll magazine launched in 1982, out of a house in Oakland's Rockridge neighborhood, and it's been coming out monthly ever since then. And now, stay tuned for Tim and the Gang on Maximum Rock and Roll! I don't want to spend too much time on Maximum Rock and Roll, because that's really a whole other story, but there are a few key points. First, this was a really important magazine. Before the internet, MRR was the punk rock Bible. It's how so many people around the world found out about music and ideas and connected to each other. It inspired a whole generation to not just embrace punk music, but a whole do-it-yourself or DIY ethos. It encouraged people to start their own projects and build their own scenes. Reading it in high school blew my mind and encouraged me to start a punk band and a zine and put on shows and think about politics. And I know that millions of other people could probably say something similar. Larry sees some of the ideological roots of punk's self-reliant attitude in a Bay Area institution from a previous era. When I was living in the Bay Area in a 60s and 70s, I mean, the Grateful Dead, for example, very DIY. They would just set up in the park in Berkeley or San Francisco and play, and everybody would just show up. Okay, back to Maximum Rock and Roll. Thanks to its international distribution network, this magazine played a huge role in blowing up the Bay Area scene. Here's a line from the Give Me Something Better book that pretty much nails it. Quote, if you had a band in Milwaukee, only some people in Milwaukee knew about it. If you had a band in the East Bay, everyone all over the world knew about it. For a while in the 1980s, Larry Livermore lived at the Maximum Rock and Roll house, he worked on the magazine, and he wrote a monthly column. Around this same time, he would help launch two of the other major institutions that made the East Bay a punk rock mecca. When we get back, the birth of Gilman and Lookout Records. The punk scene was flying so far underground by the by the 80s. Most people thought it had ended when Sid died. The problem was that as soon as you got someplace half decent to have shows, then the next thing you knew sort of the more nihilistic uh, gutter punks would start showing up and starting fights and make, you know, getting noise complaints from the neighbors. And 
you know, then the cops would get involved. By around 1985 and 1986, there wasn't much going on in the Bay Area punk scene. The biggest bands from the first wave had broken up. The drugs, the drugs had really taken their toll. And the music had gotten really insular. Punk had sort of morphed into early hardcore by this time. So most of the songs were super fast and brutal. Oh, and venues were refusing to book punk bands because there were too many fights. This last problem led a few people, including Larry, to start a new project. A project that would play a huge role in kicking off the punk rock resurgence that exploded in the 1990s. That project was called Gilman. The idea of creating someplace where people could play regularly game, they, they came flocking to it and they participated and they didn't have any of the cynicism that the SF punks did. Once again, because this was the East Bay and because it was sort of out of the loop, there was nobody saying, no, that would never work. We was like, why not? Why can't it work? The people who converted this old warehouse on an industrial stretch of Gilman Street into a music venue wanted to do something different. They didn't just create a punk club. They created a kind of laboratory of social democracy. I know that sounds kind of wonky, so here are a few examples of what I mean. First of all, the space was totally volunteer-run. Also, there was no backstage area for bands to set themselves off from the crowd. Originally, they tried to flip the script even more radically. Like, they refused to advertise which bands were playing. The idea was that people would just show up and sort of be open to whatever was happening there on any given night. Or they tried to deflate the egos of musicians by saying that people who played at Gilman also had to help clean the bathrooms and pitch in with other unglamorous chores. Some of these protocols didn't last very long, but this atmosphere of experimentation created a kind of incubator for a wildly creative and quirky new scene. After seeing the hippie movement crash and burn, Larry was really excited about the potential of Gilman. One of the young organizers, Kamala Parks, who I think was about 19 at the time, her dad, who was an old-school Berkeley liberal, you know, in a, it wasn't a suit, but he'd get a sport jacket and a, and a tie, and he, he came and he made a really eloquent plea to the city council and said, hey, these kids are doing what people have always done when they come to Berkeley. They're trying to invent and reinvent themselves and the culture, and we, we need to not fear them or turn them away, but to welcome them into our community. And it was very touching to me. Uh, I think a lot of the punks probably were like, oh, yeah, whatever. Um, you know, say whatever you need to the, to the suits. But uh, I thought, yeah, that's... Uh, I had kind of burnt out on Berkeley, but at that moment I said, this is what you know, drew me to Berkeley in the first place all those years earlier, and I kind of fell in love with the place all over again. Like this kid, Robert Eggplant, who would come 10 miles on his skateboard from Pinole, and I would often come by walking or biking down from uh, downtown Berkeley, where I was, and 
it, it felt like you know a journey because West Berkeley, as I mentioned at that time, was kind of deserted, and so it was like down the, the light at the end of the tunnel, a welcoming beacon. Look, I'm not gonna try to pretend like Gilman was or is some kind of utopia where everything's perfect. There have been brawls there. There have been lots of arguments among volunteers about how the place should be run. In fact, some people who were involved with the space are boycotting it right now. By the way, I'm not addressing that controversy because this is a history show. But there's no denying that for many folks over the years, Gilman has been a refuge. Some of the kids that showed up there, they didn't, and understandably didn't talk about maybe that they didn't have much of a family life or that their father was a drunk or that their mother was a drug addict or that they were borderline homeless. You know, they just tried to, they, they were so happy to find a place where they fit in. The people who started Gilman knew that the earlier punk scene had been torn apart by violence, drug abuse, racist skinheads, and really gratuitous antisocial behavior. They wanted Gilman to last. So the other thing that separated Gilman from most other punk clubs was a strict set of rules. Some of the big ones were no fighting, no drinking or drugs at or in front of the venue, and no racism, sexism, or homophobia. Considering that punks aren't exactly known for respecting rules, I asked Larry if it was hard to get everybody on the same page. I don't think there was any uh, big contingent uh, in favor of, no, we, we have to have sexism or homophobia. Uh, but, uh, there, but there were people that thought that that was stifling freedom of expression. And it's important to remember that in the early punk days, there, it was routine to do things just for the sake of shock, for instance, I mentioned earlier that benefit show The Clash did. The most memorable image of that night for me, even more than The Clash and the other bands, was it was the event was being held in what had once been a, a Jewish temple, and that stained glass windows with the Star of David in it, and and everything was sort of lit with a, a, a sort of a blood red light, which made it very vivid. But uh, seeing a punk go by with a swastika armband in front of the Star of David. And, you know, most punks were not Nazis, but I think, I think Sid Vicious, among others, sported swastikas because he knew it would horrify people. So I think the issue was not so much whether sexism and racism should be banned. It was like, how do you define those things? And that changes. Like I said before, a lot of people bristled at these rules. And there have been countless debates at Gilman's volunteer meetings about interpreting and enforcing them. But there's no denying that these rules and Gilman's decision to do things the legal way in regards to like building codes and legal permits and that kind of thing have been the key to its longevity. You know, with Gilman, we deliberately did it legit. And of course, a lot of people criticized that at the time, saying, oh, you're selling out and you're tools of society and all that. But, you know, the evidence should be clear. Gilman is still there 30 years later and none of those other places are. Well, folks, I'm sorry. Someone got hurt. The police are here. 
The whole building is surrounded. They want you to exit to the border slowly. I told you this shit was going to happen. I asked everybody to calm the fuck Often down what was going on in the front rooms and around the, the entryway and out on the sidewalk out front was just as important or more so than who might actually be playing. I mean, there were nights I probably never even got up to the stage to see who was playing because I was too busy talking or goofing around with, with people. A lot of the the talk and interaction revolved around, you know, what kind of project, you know, who, hey, you want to start a fanzine? Hey, you know, we should do this this band, you know, doing this kind of thing. And, you know, literally some great bands like started right on a sidewalk out front. There's this caricature of punk fashion as spiked mohawks and studded leather jackets. Musically, the stereotype is that punk has to be fast and angry. The Gilman scene was much more diverse than this. In contrast to the hardcore bands that were around at the time, a lot of the early Gilman bands were slower and more melodic. And instead of trying to be really serious and intense, the Gilman scene was a lot goofier. People would make fun of macho dudes in the pit by, like, riding around on those big wheel toys where people were trying to mosh. Bands were free to get more creative, partially because nobody else outside of this weird little scene was paying any attention. But pretty soon, some of these bands started getting good, and this gave Larry an idea. And the motivation at the time was that I just did not like any of the records that were on the radio or in the stores. I thought, geez, and this, thanks to Gilman, the first year of Gilman, it's like, hey, all these teenagers and friends of mine are making music that's way better than I could find in the stores or on the radio. So if I ever want any decent records, I'm going to have to make them myself. And that's when the idea started percolating. And I think, well, it's kind of just like making a zine, isn't it? You know, you know all you got to do is just get a recording and mass produce it and somehow get it out to people that want to hear it. You know, sounds simple. The zine comparison that Larry just made was a reference to a popular punk rock periodical that he was doing at the time called Lookout. When he decided to start Lookout Records, that's where he got the name. When Larry and his co-founder, David Hayes, started putting out little 7-inch records, aka 45s, their goal wasn't to become world famous and sell millions of albums. But Larry did take inspiration from seeing what happened to a local independent record label that he remembered from his childhood in Michigan. My formative experiences back in Detroit, when I was a teenager, were seeing the Supremes and watching the development of Motown Records, which was a entirely homegrown people from the projects. Like they just said, you know, nobody's going to ever come listen to our groups. Uh, Nobody's ever going to come to Detroit uh, talent scouting, so we'll just do it ourselves. And, you know, again, the technology was starting to emerge where that was a realistic possibility. Within a matter of years, it was like they were able to put, completely, with a completely straight face, the sound of young America as the slogan on, on every of their, one of their labels of their records. You know, this was so inspiring to me. Now, it didn't happen overnight, but in the 1990s, punk got really big. Punk bands were all over MTV. Events like the Warp Tour brought punk all over the country for huge crowds. Stores like Hot Topic popped up so kids could start dressing like 
what they thought punks were supposed to look like. And a handful of groups started selling millions and millions of records. Two of the biggest bands of this era, Green Day and Rancid, both put out their first records on Lookout. Of course, there were many other independent record labels that played a part in this resurgence. But Lookout was right at the center of this movement. And along with each new level of success came bigger and bigger problems. Here's Larry talking about why his first partner decided to leave Lookout in 1990, well before the platinum records started rolling in. When Lookout first started to sell a few records, we weren't, I don't know if we were even making a profit, but we were making, some money was coming in and it started to look like it had promise. He was disturbed by that. He said, this is like, I don't, I never wanted to do this. This is becoming like a job. And my attitude as a, a Detroiter was like, yeah, well, every job I ever had sucked. And this is like, got its problem, but it's actually a pretty great job doing stuff that I really believe in and love. So how could that be wrong? What, what is this whole debate about selling out has about a million different angles. But remember that a lot of the punk kids were misfits. Places like Gilman gave them a safe space to be themselves in their own little community. But as punk got popular, more and more jocks and frat boys started coming to shows. Not only did this present some physical threats, but it diluted what a lot of punks thought made their scene special. And of course, a lot of people were also resentful that punk was turning into big business. That sort of schism would spring up again and again over the years as Lookout got bigger. A lot of the area punks started to say, oh, Lookout's getting all corporate uh, or Lookout selling out the scene, you know, because you sold, you know, this band now has sold 5,000 records. Uh, and, and all I, I, you know, I had a hard time with that. You know, with my work and behavioral record, I'm, you know, having a normal career and all was never on the cards for me. It was either a, be a scruffy down and outer or maybe have some success as a DIY entrepreneur. And so, yeah, I didn't have a, I didn't have a problem with it, although I think, you know, subliminally, that barrage of criticism, which mounted as the East Bay scene and Lookout Records got bigger, I think it ate away at me. I think I really began to question, am I doing the right thing? The massive amount of, of money and attention that came in, especially following Green Day's success, really distorted everything at Lookout and maybe began the process that led to its downfall. But I, I really hesitate to, to lay too much blame there because, and, you know, ultimately, as I said earlier, I got to take full responsibility myself. Um, you know, if, if, there, if there were things I could have done better, if there were ways that I could not have been uh, sort of overwhelmed, you know, it's down to my own my own flaws of character. Where, and I might might go back to my my upbringing. Yeah, there was a, a, a kind of a dual tendency among working class Detroiters, which I think probably will have will have never left me uh, completely. Which, on one hand, I mentioned earlier the sort of chip on the shoulder attitude. Oh yeah, just don't you like go putting on airs? I'm just as good as you, even though not 
really believing it because we were we were you know kind of insecure but also the the other side of that was always an eye out for you know some kind of chance in his book how to ruin a record label larry is really upfront and honest about his mistakes it's been nearly 20 years since he walked away from the company that he built but his emotions about it are still kind of raw even knowing that it wouldn't be a fun topic to confront, I was still just totally stunned by what he told me when I asked him about it. Long before Lookout and all, I once, uh, I once wrote a, a play, and one of my primary motivations for doing so was that my younger brother at the time was studying to, to be an actor, and I wanted to write a vehicle that he could act in, along with some of our other friends, and that reflected our joint experience coming from the Midwest out to, to California. As it developed, it developed into a slightly bigger thing than I'd anticipated, and I ended up getting a, a director, a self-styled director, uh, who had some experience in the theater business. But he started telling me that my brother wasn't good enough to appear in the play. He wanted to put in this other guy who was a kind of maybe a little bit more experienced actor, but was basically just a pinup, uh, you know, poster guy. He was the kind of guy you see in advertisements for suits or something. You know, perfectly nice guy. But the whole reason I was writing the play was for my brother and because my brother reflected that whole Midwestern kind of hard-bitten but idealistic and dreamy uh, uh, I, uh, aesthetic that had brought us here. So I was really torn. The director was saying, look, you've got to fire your brother and take this other actor. I was, didn't know what to do, so I called my dad, and my dad said, well, you've got to take the advice of the expert. Uh, and I, so I fired my brother. It's heartbreaking. It's like it divided us ever. You know, we're talking like 40-some years or more ago. But it's, um, you know, I don't know if the play would have been worse or better with my brother, but I had sold out the whole idea of what it was for damn i mean just damn and that advice my dad gave me i don't fault him for it it was a typical is a detroit thing you know like well we're just schmucks from detroit what do we know you know about hollywood and acting and all that stuff so better take the experts advice and that was a little bit of that i mean i Thought I had moved on from that, but that was a little bit of what was affecting me at the time when Lookout started getting really big. Everybody was saying, oh, you got to get like, be more professional now. You got to have some real employees and contracts and offices and, and desks and computer systems and uh, you know all of this stuff that we had done just fine with, that we had sold millions of records without. But, you know, always I hear it of, the that voice, you know, yeah, well, maybe the experts know better, know best. You should do, try it their way. And, you know, so I kind of turned my back on what had made Lookout so great. For the vast majority of Larry's time at Lookout, he'd been running the label, along with his partners, Chris Applegren and Patrick Hines, out of his crappy studio apartment. Apparently, the bathroom didn't even have a real door on it, and Larry slept on a pile of blankets in the corner, because having a bed would have taken too much space away from the quote-unquote office. Even though this sounds really uncomfortable, 
It was Lookout's golden age. Once they moved into a real office on University Avenue, things started going downhill. Honestly, I feel like I, I wish I had never left running it out of my room because that was just that then it was just fun it was chaos but it was fun and once we were in an office with receptionists and you know all of this the trappings of power and influence and stuff it really kind of the soul had gone out of it for for me at least i lacked the self-confidence and self-esteem so i just started drinking more and uh escaping more and like saying oh i don't want i can't deal with it and that's where I feel like I let myself and, more importantly, I let the, a lot of the artists and the other lookout people down. To make a long story short, Larry unexpectedly resigned from Lookout in 1997, leaving his 24-year-old partner, Chris Applegren, in charge. The label started moving away from its signature East Bay punk sound and started losing lots of money. They stopped paying bands all the money that was owed to them, and... Once these bands terminated their contracts, the label pretty much fell apart. It hung on for a while, but Lookout officially went out of business in 2012. Instead of resigning, Larry probably could have sold Lookout to a major label for millions and millions of dollars. But he didn't. His Lookout legacy isn't too shabby, though. He helped launch the biggest selling band in the history of punk, Green Day. He put out one of the most influential records of an entire era, Energy, by Operation Ivy. And he also helped introduce millions of people to one of the most in-your-face queer bands of all time, Pansy Division. And that was back at a time when being out of the closet could be a career killer. So, all in all, not a bad legacy for a former juvenile delinquent. One, two, one, two, three, four! We're here to tell you, you better make way. We're queer rockers in your face today. We can't At the end of our conversation, I asked Larry if he thinks there's a future for punk. For an older gentleman, he's refreshingly unnostalgic. You know, music itself is changing. Guitar-based rock was the voice of a generation for probably from my teenage or childhood until recently, but it's not anymore. And a lot of my friends, I was going to say friends my own age, but a lot of them are much younger than me. Oh, that, that new electronic music, that's not really music, that's just a bunch of noise. You know, identical to what my dad said the first time he heard the Beatles in 1964. That's not music. That's just a bunch of electronic blah. And parents and older people have been saying that probably since time immemorial, um, probably when the first Greek lyric poets uh, 3,000 years ago started banging a stick on the ground to, to put some beat to their, to their lyric poetry, uh, the old-timers were like, why do you got to make all those gimmicks and why can't you... <laughs> You know, you just carve things into rocks like we used to. So um, I'm, I, I'm not overly exercised about whether punk, as it has been or will be, remains an important thing or whether it just becomes another thing that the kids say, oh, yeah, that's what mom and dad used to do, uh, ha, ha. Oh, and he's not just being figurative with this last comment. That's exactly what he saw happening the night before we talked 
during one of the lookout anniversary shows at Gilman. I mean, I stood with some kids last night watching their mom and dad running around screaming on stage. And they were just like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> whatever, you know, whatever makes mom and dad happy. <laughs> so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. I just barely scratched the surface of the history of Bay Area punk with this episode. If you're looking for another perspective, from a rad woman of color, for example, check out the book The Spit Boy Rule, Tales of a Chicana in a Female Punk Band by Michelle Cruz Gonzalez. I also highly recommend Give Me Something Better by Jack Bulware and Silk Tudor. For this episode, I want to thank Natalie Cadrenal and everyone who's ever volunteered at Gilman and Maxim Rock and Roll. As always, props to everybody who's working hard to keep Oakland history alive through projects like the Oakland Wiki, the Oakland Heritage Alliance, the Oakland History Facebook Group, and of course, the local history room at the Oakland Library. Please follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There are links to all those pages at eastbayyesterday.com. Thank you so much to everybody who's been sharing this show on social media and leaving reviews on iTunes. It really inspires me to keep cranking these out. Seriously, you folks are awesome. Music for this episode came from The Lookouts, Isocracy, Flats, Pansy Division, The Potato Men, and Single Bullet Theory. And I also use tiny little clips from Dead Kennedys, Rancid, and Crimpshrine. Oh, and Larry Livermore played in two of those bands, The Lookouts and The Potato Men. The theme song music came from Anatech. If you have feedback on today's show or you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, drop me a line on the social media channel of your choice or at eastbayyesterday at gmail.com. Oh, and I'm doing an event with the good folks from Shaping SF about local history podcasts in early March. Check out their website for all the details. That's shapingsf.org. And one last thing. Please go out and support local bands, especially at a time like right now when it's so hard to survive as a musician in the Bay Area. Instead of spending another night at home watching Netflix or whatever, take a chance and go see some homegrown East Bay music. You never know what you might stumble upon. Well, actually, in Green Day, I saw a, in a little room. But to, to recognize, it's not so much the what happens in the aftermath, you know, to like, oh, now those kids that played in that little room are have sold God knows how many millions of records and play in front of stadiums it's it's more the 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 exciting and astounding part is actually seeing them in the little room and going like oh this is like one of the best bands in the world and they're playing in for me and five other people